Hello, and welcome to McGill Cares, a weekly webcast series addressing a wide variety of topics to support family and informal caregivers. I'm Claire Webster, a former caregiver who became a certified Alzheimer care consultant and founder of the McGill University Dementia Education Program. I work with a dynamic team of leading healthcare professionals to oversee this program, which include Dr. Jose Moret from the Division of Geriatric Medicine, Dr. Serge Gauthier, McGill University Research Center for Studies in Aging, and Dr. Gerald Fried, McGill Steinberg Center for Simulation and Interactive Learning. These webcasts are made possible thanks to the generosity of our donors. Today's webcast is made possible thanks to the Zeller Family Foundation. So today we will be discussing navigating the journey of Parkinson's disease. My guest is Dr. Ronald Postuma, Professor of Neurology at McGill University, a clinical researcher and movement disorders neurologist who treats patients with Parkinson's disease and related disorders at the neuro. His research interest focus, focuses upon Parkinson's disease, particularly on detecting early stages of the disease, examining the impact of non-motor symptoms on disease subtype and prognosis, and testing new treatments for non-motor manifestations such as sleep disorders. Dr. Postuma co-developed Parkinson's disease, an introductory guide with the McGill University Health Center Patient Education Office. Welcome to our Pleasure show. Um, I'm very, very interested in discussing this topic. Over the last few years, actually, I have quite a few friends who've been um, diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And um, although I feel like I know a little bit about it, I have a particular interest to know more, especially in order to be able to support you know, some of my friends. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd like to begin and really, can you please tell us what is Parkinson's disease and what are the early symptoms, motor and non-motor? Right. So the best way to conceptualize Parkinson's disease is it's one of those diseases of aging, like many, uh, many diseases of aging. And so essentially, you know, as we're getting old, uh, you know, our bits of our bodies and our brains don't work as well as they used to. Okay. And areas of our, our bodies and cells and our bodies and brains die off stop functioning okay and parkinson's disease is a just a certain type of neurological aging of certain areas of your brain and so what i often just tell patients it's kind of like aging but certain areas of your brain are just getting old faster than the rest of you uh and it the main areas that we define it um that it was originally always defined is is the motor areas and so uh the areas that are responsible for secreting a chemical called dopamine which is missing and as a result people don't don't move uh, very well. Um, and But it's become also very, very clear that it's not just the motor areas, as well, it's the non-motor areas as well. And so, in fact, there's a whole list, like a bucket list of, of, of 30, 40, 50 symptoms that all can be related to Parkinson's in areas that are closely related or in the same area. So uh, some of the motor symptoms uh, can be for example, let's, let's just run through them, actually. That's probably the easiest thing to do. Um, and so the, the main motor symptoms that people will experience is a slowing of movement, okay? That's the essential core of, of Parkinson's disease. And so you just, there's a circuit in your brain that's going wrong uh, and uh, it's telling you not to move or to move slowly. And as a result, every movement that you're trying to do is less than it should be. So you move slower and you move less. Okay. And then in conjunction with that, there's some stiffness that you that's that the doctor can pick up. And then there's tremor. But not everyone with 
Parkinson's as tremor. We think about shaking as being Parkinson's, but in fact, most people who shake don't have Parkinson's. Uh, it's a specific kind of shaking uh, when you're at rest. Uh, so that's the main core of the motor symptoms. And then also with that can be some other motor issues that are less core. So difficulty with balance, uh, difficulty, um, of course you have slow and slow walking, but also freezing, the feet getting stuck, uh, some difficulty swallowing. These tend to be things that happen a little bit later in the disease. So that's one big box of symptoms. And then the other big box of symptoms are, are non-motor things. And so there are very, very many of these. So for example, almost all patients uh, don't have lost their sense of smell. They may not have realized it, but the sense yeah. of smell is decreased or even absent in, in the majority yeah. of the cases. Yeah. Most patients have constipation uh, at some yeah. point in their illness. Uh, then there can be other what we call autonomic things like changes in the bladder and erectile dysfunction and blood pressure uh, changes when you stand up. Then there's a class of, of uh, symptoms related to the psychiatric or cognitive states. And so um, there, for the, the, the areas of the brain that are responsible for secreting some of the chemicals that regulate our mood, uh, it can go wrong as well. And so they don't have enough serotonin, so they have anxiety is very, very common. Um, cognitive problems can happen. We'll talk about that a little bit later, I mm -hmm. suppose. Yeah. Um, uh, it, and then the sleep disorders, and there's a variety of sleep disorders that happen uh, with it. So uh, typically difficulty staying asleep, no problem falling asleep, it can't stay asleep, wake up too early, can't mm -hmm. get back to sleep again. Later in the disease, some troubles with somnolence. Um, you can act out your dreams at night. That's in fact a very common early sign of Parkinson's disease. And so really it feels like a massive laundry list of potential symptoms, uh, but all of them are really core symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And some people get some and some people get others. And um, what are the risk factors? Like, because because like the friends of mine that have have been diagnosed are were in are in their early fifties. I mean, what are the what are the risk factors for it? So there's so family history can be important. Okay, uh, and so if you're if you're if you are a, your children, okay, if you have Parkinson's, do have an increased risk about double. Okay, uh, which sounds like a lot, but remember, it's not that common of a disease. So their lifetime risk, say, instead of one in 100 or one in 50, goes to two in 100, two out of 50, something like that. Uh, and that varies a little bit according to ethnic group and where you're from. Uh, there's certain groups that have more genetic causes than others do, but it's something that we see across the board. There's a few other risk factors. Pesticides uh, are are well established as a risk factor for Parkinson's disease. Probably some other environmental toxins like solvents, solvents, uh, industrial occupational solvents. They're not that strong. Okay, so if you say you worked with pesticides all your life, your risk of getting Parkinson's is about fifty percent more. So you know, instead of two out of a hundred, three out of a hundred, something like that. So they're not that dramatic. And uh, then there's a few, like some weird ones, like non-smokers get Parkinson's disease more. And that we don't really understand. Is it that smoking protects against Parkinson's disease? Well, possibly, but it might be a lot of other things. Uh, for example, people with Parkinson's have a, a personality. Uh, and so uh, Parkinson's patients tend on average to be, I guess you would say, solid, reliable, uh, loyal people who don't do too many risky things like smoke or skydive and don't mm. tend to be musicians, tend to be accountants. So for example, mm. it's kind of a strange thing that we see in Parkinson's. 
And so that may be why we see smoking, for example, as a you know, because smoking is a risky, not very good for you behavior. So maybe it has something to do with that. Mm-hmm. But if you look, if you look at sort of you as an individual, I have Parkinson's now. What were my risk factors that gave me Parkinson's disease? Most of the time, it it just happened. Uh, there's no underlying single cause that we're going to be able to identify. Even if you worked with pesticides, you know, two out of three chance it had not much to do with those pesticides. So all of the strongest risk factors, except for those rare genetic, pure genetic cases, it's just mostly chance uh, that happens to us all. What about concussions? Like what's the correlation between concussions? There is a slight increased risk in people who have had concussions. Okay. It's a little bit difficult to measure because Parkinson's disease has a really long early interval. So before you showed up to your doctor's office with Parkinson's disease, it was in your brain for a good 10 years on average, maybe even more, Hmm. maybe as much as 20. And so when you see people who have a a concussion, why did they have a concussion? Did they fall and hit their head? Well, maybe that was your Parkinson's actually three years before that you never felt and you, you didn't pick up your feet as much when you walked, so you tripped on the curb. So when you take those out, then there still is a bit of a connection with concussions, but it's really not very strong. So you know, most people who get concussions will never have uh, will never have Parkinson's. That's for sure. And how do you make the diagnosis? So the diagnosis is made actually in a doctor's office without a lot of tests. It's it's one of those diagnoses that is really just uh, based on pattern recognition. And so <clears throat> you first you diagnose the Parkinson's. And so what that means is the doctor sees that the movements are slow. That's the key. And they also note that the movements are not only slow, but they slow down. So you start off pretty good, if you can see my video, and then they get slower and then they get stiffer. That's the, that's the, the hallmark. If you then see tremor, or if you see some of the stiffness, or you see some of the typical gait abnormalities, you, got, you get diagnosed with Parkinsonism. Okay. Parkinsonism tells you that that circuit is wrong. Okay. That mo- you have the motor uh, syndrome of Parkinsonism, and then you have to figure out why. 80% of the time, it's Parkinson's disease because Parkinson's disease is by far the most common. There are, however, there are other medic- there are medications that can cause it. So people with schizophrenia, for example, often uh, on those medications that suppress the dopamine system, well, they're going to get Parkinsonism just created by the medications itself. Uh, On the other hand, there are uh, a variety of other neurological diseases that can produce the Parkinsonism, uh, but aren't Parkinson's disease, but they might be related. So they're still aging-related diseases. You actually still treat them the same way, so missing the diagnosis is not such a disaster. Um, But they tend to do worse, actually. Uh, They tend to be diseases that are more serious and more severe. I respond less well to the medications. So it's really the doctor will look and they'll say, I think this looks like Parkinson's disease. And if it's a, an experienced neurologist, 80% of the time, 90% of the time, that's correct. Okay. If it's clear. Okay. Sometimes the doctor will say, I don't know, it might be Parkinson's, but there's some features of these other conditions. And then what we do is we watch over time. And if it's one of these other diseases, we start to see it over time. We start to see that, oh, the medications don't work as well, or that you're getting new features that we can see. This doesn't look like Parkinson's anymore. This looks like one of the other related diseases. Because I could see how, you know, when you're talking about stiffness, I could see it being like at a certain age. I mean, I'm in my early fifties now being it mistaken almost for arthritis, you know, because I have different 
joints yeah. that are, you know are yeah, it, stiff. It's so I would say not arthritis. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a completely different feeling in the doctor's office, right? Uh, but you know, stiffness mm -hmm. you can point to if you can point to your elbow and you say my elbow's stiff. That's not Parkinson's, right? If my arm is mm -hmm. stiff and it just doesn't move, then that's a little bit more of a Parkinson's symptom. But that stiffness is not necessarily something you feel. That's something the doctor picks up on their examination, actually. Okay. So can you explain how does the disease evolve over time? I mean, you know, I specialize in dementia and, you know, it goes from a cognitive decline to a physical decline over time. What about Parkinson's? Like, what's the evolution of the disease and how many years does it typically right. last? There's no one pattern of Parkinson's disease, okay? And we think that, in fact, Parkinson's disease, we know it's a sort of an underlying neurodegenerative disease characterized by a synuclein deposition, et cetera, okay? But we realize that there are many pathways that people would have taken to get there and there's a lot of variety in Parkinson's. So everyone really is very, very different from each other. I'd say more so than many neurological diseases. Okay, so with that in mind, um, the early stages of Parkinson's disease in most cases are, are there, like I said, 10 years before the disease. The earliest stages is loss of sense of smell, constipation. Uh, if, if people are going to act out their dreams at night, the REM, what we call REM sleep behavior disorder, that can happen 10 to 15 years before. Okay, and then uh, that non-motor stage is probably caused by the the synuclein protein, the protein that we think is most responsible for Parkinson's, spreading around your nervous system, okay, in areas that aren't really affecting your motor system yet, okay? Sometime in the early stages of diseases, the motor systems start to become affected. And at that point, there's a subtle change that probably lasts about five years, where people just you know their face is less expressive, their voice is a little less flat, uh, they move subtly, slowly, but nobody really notices. This is what everyone does a little bit when they get old, right? If they get a tremor, well, okay, now we can see it. Now there's something going on. Okay, that's Parkinson's disease. But they never get a tremor. You can linger like that for several years before you get the diagnosis. After you get the diagnosis, um, the big thing will be to what degree you respond to the medications, okay? And that will really tell you how this will dissolve, uh, evolve around time. Most people, the large majority of people, get a good response to medications, okay? Some people don't get as much response, and if you don't get as much response and you're unwell, then the prognosis is generally a little bit worse. Um, when the medications work and they work well, and they do in most people, we often talk about a honeymoon where basically everyone gets a few years where everything, we have nothing to talk about. We come in and, you know, how are you? Fine. The medications are, yeah, they're good. Any side effects? Yeah, a little upset stomach, it's gone now. Great. And that's it. And then over time, one of two things tends to happen. People who have an exceptional response to medication, and particularly those who are young, uh, well, the trouble we run into is keeping the doses stable, okay? So the medication works amazingly, and then it doesn't work. Then it works amazingly, and doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, your Parkinson's comes back full, and it works amazingly, you're great, but you might even have extra movements. You might be wriggling around like this. We call that dyskinesia. That's sort of one path that people can go. And another path that tends to happen with people who are older is that those non-motor symptoms and those non-dopamine symptoms start to dominate. Um, and so more trouble with the sleep, maybe some troubles with the memory, troubles with the balance, uh, troubles with the bowels and the bladder, this sort of thing. And so they're not absolute distinctions, but you know that tends to be the thing that ends people's honeymoon. Uh, and then... It, 
after that, it goes how it goes. You know, young people in general can live for 30 years and don't notice much differences at all. Uh, if you're 90 years old and you have Parkinson's disease, obviously that's not on the table and, and tends to be worse in people who are, who are advanced age. So age and Parkinson's don't mix so well. And what's the correlation between Parkinson's disease and dementia? Like, does everyone who has Parkinson's disease eventually begin to suffer from cognitive decline? No. Um, there are So there's two kinds of cognitive problems that people can get with Parkinson's disease. The first is just a failure to activate the brains, okay? Uh, so kind of think of yourself like when you're half asleep, half awake, right? You're kind of cognitively impaired, but you're not really. Your brain is perfectly fine. Uh, and so sometimes the medications that we use for Parkinson's disease are just keeping yourself alert and moving around and exercising essentially can resolve that, okay? Uh, and that can sometimes then come back when the people, like I mentioned, the, the, the medication works and it doesn't, will feel foggy and not so well and anxious and, and not so alert when their medications wear off. Okay? And then they're back to normal again when the medications wear off. Okay? Then, so that happens to many, many people with Parkinson's disease. The other thing that happens, though, to other people um, is that you can get dementia with Parkinson's disease. And it's probably related to the neurodegeneration actually happening in the cortex, in the areas of the brain that control our thinking, our memory, our concentration. It's not like Alzheimer's. There is a memory deficit, but the memory deficit's not so profound. It's more of a difficulty in paying attention, staying focused, and activating your memory. So um, if I ask an Alzheimer's patient, I want you to remember three words, okay? Ball, flag, and tree. Oh, I, I shouldn't have that. I gave my standard words to everybody. Okay, so now, uh, you know, an Alzheimer's patient will, uh, I'll ask them five minutes later, what were those words? It's like, what words? They have no idea. The Parkinson's patient who has dementia will sort of say, I, I can't quite remember. And I could say, all right, it was a round object. Oh, yes, Paul. So it's still there. It encodes, but they have difficulty activating it. Um, so it's not the same sort of dementia that you think about with Alzheimer's disease. It's difficulty focusing, difficulty multitasking, sleepiness, etc. And not everyone gets it. It's when you're older that you get it. Um, it's very unusual to get dementia at the age of 60, okay? But if you have Parkinson's and you've had dementia, Parkinson's for seven years and you're 95 years old, you probably will have dementia. Uh, just like I said earlier, aging and Parkinson's is not a great mix. So, so to understand then, because I've seen cases where people have dementia and Parkinson's, so it's possible to unfortunately have both illnesses, correct? Yes, that's right. And so we, there's a condition called dementia with Lewy bodies, okay, yeah. uh, which um, looks a lot like Alzheimer's disease, okay, but is basically Alzheimer's and Parkinson's at the same time, okay? So people are in the Alzheimer's clinics, and then they get this, we start to realize they're acting out their dreams at night, which Alzheimer's patients never do. Uh, they're, they're, they're very variable, they fluctuate, they have visual hallucinations. This is dementia with Lewy bodies, okay? The exact same profile is the profile of Parkinson's disease dementia. And in fact, these are not mutually exclusive conditions. Dementia with Lewy bodies is essentially Parkinson's disease dementia and mm -hmm. vice versa, but the time course and the mix is a little bit different. They're just extremes on the spectrum. Um, so yes, you can have dementia even before Parkinson's disease in some cases. Mm -hmm. If you have this dementia with Lewy bodies and then it starts to get your motor system a little bit later, we don't sometimes see that as well. So you've mentioned it a few times. Can you just elaborate? You say acting out your dreams. I mean, are you being physical at night? Like, what do you mean by acting out your dreams? Ah. 
Yeah, so this normally when we dream, we're paralyzed. Okay, so many of us may remember the dreams when you're trying to yell and your voice isn't coming out right, or you're trying to run and your legs don't work. Many of us have those dreams. That's because your voice isn't working and your legs aren't working, and your brain's going, What the heck? Um, that's normal. You're supposed to be paralyzed when you dream. And in Parkinson's disease, the system that keeps you paralyzed degenerates as well. And so now you're capable of acting out your dreams. This is not sleepwalking. Uh, you, you actually can't walk during this, but let's say you're dreaming that you're giving a lecture, you're, you actually give that lecture. Or if you're dreaming you're fighting, you'll, you'll thrash around. And that's, that's about half of Parkinson patients have it. Uh, and that's one of the commonest early signs. That's one of those things like, like olfactory loss, uh, where uh, people 10 years, 15 years before they ever get Parkinson's disease, this happens to them. So that could become very challenging then for the family member who's sleeping besides their partner, right? Because, yeah. I mean... Right yeah, there. so yeah, injury is the big problem. Uh, you know, you throw yourself out of bed. It doesn't really disrupt your sleep so much, you know, yeah. but it'll disrupt your sleep if you punch the wall or punch your spouse, that's for sure. Yeah, my so goodness. If it's really yeah. bad, uh, you can just sleep alone, uh, and that generally resolves the problem, right? But there are medications that one can use as well if it's, if it's really bad. Okay, so speaking about medications, what are the treatments like pharmaceutical and non-pharmaceutical treatments for the disease? Okay, well, let's talk about the non-pharmaceutical first. Um, talking about what we know is useful, okay? And so leaving out the very, very long list of, of a bunch of things that may or may not work, okay? And we have no evidence for. The, the one non-pharmacologic thing that's probably the most important to do is exercise, okay? Vigorous exercise, not little walks down the block. I tell my patients uh, at least every other day, preferably every day, you're sweating because you, you did that much exercise. And there are, it's very, very clear that that can improve the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. It can, there's actually trials showing you can improve your sleep as well. It's probably the best treatment you can use for, your, for, for increasing the quality of your sleep. And there's even some suggestions, and you can never prove these things very well, that it might slow down the underlying neurodegeneration process. So I always, exercise is really, really important uh, to try and do. And I don't think it matters what kind, as long as it's intense enough that, you're, that your body's under a little, you're, you're tired afterwards. As so you're pushing yourself, you're getting, yeah. you're getting yeah. the heart rate up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tai Chi is good for balance, dancing is good. Uh, but if you want to run, you want to swim, you want to bike, go ahead. Yeah, there are many. So that's, that's the non-pharmacologic treatment that, that I can stand behind, okay? Mm -hmm. um, now, the pharmacologic treatments uh, are, there's, so there's two classes, really, right? We have two sets of problems. One is the motor problems, and one is this very long laundry list of non-motor problems. The motor problems all really centralize around the area of the brain that makes you move the way that you do is because your area of the, the brain is supposed to be making dopamine, and we get, and so it doesn't do it anymore because it's aging, it's no longer working. We give you the dopamine back. And we can do that in a variety of areas, of ways, sorry. Um, you know, we can boost the levels of dopamine by slowing down its deterioration. We can uh, give medications that copy dopamine, that's called the dopamine receptor agonist, or we can just give you dopamine. And the, the most common treatment for Parkinson's disease is dopamine, just straight dopamine. It's called levodopa, brand name Cinemet. Uh, it, it's the treatment for Parkinson's disease. And basically everyone with Parkinson's should be on this at some point, uh, usually actually relatively soon after their mm -hmm. disease. Most people 
will want to be on this because it's so effective. Um, it, it's one of the miracles of medicine. There's you, you can watch movies. Awakenings is, is a is a terrific example of Robert. Yeah. De, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's it's a great movie. Robert De Niro and uh, and uh, Robin Williams. Robin Williams. That's right. I knew there was two cars. <laughs> Uh, and that's the invention of levodopa it applied to a certain group of people uh, who didn't actually have Parkinson's, but it actually shows the story uh, of, of how dramatically effective that medication uh, can be. And so uh, that's that's the motor treatment, okay? And then if we're having difficulties with this, it gets quite complicated. So there's like six different medications all at different times with very precise scheduling. And early on, it's quite simple. We just give you that medication three times a day. The time's not so important. We cruise along for a while. Uh, the non-motor treatments, well, it really depends, right? Because there's a laundry list. And so there's so much that we can do for these problems. Um, so constipation, well, that's usually pretty easy. There's a variety of things we can do for constipation. Bladder, a hyperactive bladder, there's a, a few medications that can reduce the, the need to urinate. Uh, the sleep problems that I mentioned, well, exercise is very important for that. But there's treatments that will... Uh, help you sleep a little bit. There are treatments that will uh, keep you awake if that's your problem. And there are treatments that can prevent you from acting out your dreams. Uh, antidepressants um, can work quite well sometimes for sleep and for uh, anxiety and that sort of nagging feeling like there's you're always worried about what you're doing next. That's a common thing in Parkinson's disease. They're, they're coming for a visit. They see me 11 times. There's no stress, but they can't sleep for a week because they're thinking about what we're going to talk about, you know, this is a very Parkinson's uh, uh, part of the disease. So antidepressants can help with that a little bit as well. There's good medications, in fact, for dementia and Parkinson's disease. They, they don't fix the problem, but the same medications that we use for Alzheimer's disease, those treatments uh, we use for Parkinson's disease, and I'm quite convinced that they're more effective in Parkinson's disease. Um, so it, it's really a huge laundry list, and it can get very, very complicated. If you've got 14 symptoms, then we have to decide together which one of those we need to treat and how we're going to balance the medications and which one's a side effect. It, it can get very, very complicated. So when your Parkinson's is relatively advanced, you need to be in the center where they know how to do all that. Uh, well, I was it, just listening to you and you really need, it sounds like you really have to accompany your patients because as the disease evolves, you're constantly adjusting the medications, right? So how often would you see patients then? Like, I mean, how the patient sees you? Yeah, so it, it depends a little bit. So our standard, we see patients every six months or so, and then we go more frequently when things are difficult, okay? And so what I typically find every six months is fine early on because every everything, people really do cruise uh, for a few years. And then when it starts getting hard, then we have to increase the frequency uh, because now we're always playing and tinkering and, and moving things around and balancing side effects with benefits and all these sorts of things. It can be quite complicated. Um, later in disease, people often find that they want to come a little bit less as well. So this is sort of a, a peak that goes like this in the intensity of treatments and visits. So what are the most important things that a person receiving a diagnosis needs to know in order to plan for the future? I mean, you, you mentioned exercise, the importance of exercise, but yep. how does somebody plan for their future? Right. Uh, that's the thing. It, everybody's different. And so it's hard to know how things will go. And so it's a very different conversation if you're 45 years old, which is not most people, but we certainly have people who are 45. And now we have to start thinking about how... How long are you going to work? How are we going to keep you in your job? We need to often treat relatively aggressively so you don't drop off in performance, so you keep your 
your post, what happens if you lose your job. These are all issues that we, we have to deal with quite often. Most people are sort of pushing the retirement age, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, this sort of thing. Uh, and then it's, it's really hard to say what's going to happen. Uh, and in a sense, you don't want to over plan too much. You need to be aware that if you got Parkinson's disease and you're 58, you might make it to 65, you might not, okay, in terms of working. Uh, you might decide that you want to retire early. So be aware and start planning for that now, okay? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if you got five years, most people who are, aren't 90 got five years of pretty good function. So enjoy it. Um, this, you know, you might have 20 years of good function, you might have five. Uh, so just live in the moment a little bit as well. Um, but it, it's hard because everyone's so different. It's really hard to sort of tell people what to plan because it's your life and you, you know what your priorities are, right? Mm -hmm. And how can family and informal caregivers best support a loved one? Well, it depends on, you know, early on in the disease, when everything is fine, you just have to be there for emotional support, really. Um, uh, it's, it's when things get difficult, you, you know, a few years in, you know, things can get difficult uh, for caregivers. Uh, you have to be you have to make sure you got the resources in place a little bit and you have to be maybe a year or two ahead. Um, mm -hmm. So if things are getting tough, you know, uh, your, your husband or your, your wife, they, they, they need help getting up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and they get up four times in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, you know, be aware of this. You, you got to take care of yourself. You got to take care of them. Y'all got to take care of yourself a little bit as mm -hmm. well too. We can't have you burning out. Uh, feel free to ask for help when you want it. Um, uh, there's there's lots of CLSC support that you can get. There's lots of uh, friends and family who can help. Don't, don't feel shy to not do it all by yourself uh, if it gets to that. Um, yeah, I, you know, every caregiver is different and every situation is different. You have to be adaptable um, and you have to simultaneously take care of your loved one and, and make sure that you're, it, it's a marathon. It's a multi, multi-year marathon. And so don't burn out. Take care of yourself and take care of your family at the same time. Yeah. So I, I really promote education. I think like with regards to dementia, I always say exactly what you said before to the families that I work with. You know, you always need to be one step ahead, right? So persons in this stage, you always want to be one step ahead. And, the, and education is really, I, I think, the, the most important uh, recipe in terms of understanding what you're dealing with and support. So would you agree that edu like becoming as educated as possible on the disease, knowing what's coming and seeking out support early on is, is key? Yes, yeah, and, and and this is different from dementia, of course, is that the person who gets the most educated is actually the person themselves because uh, you, you can learn. And so both patients and, and their and their family members should get informed. It's it's a difficult balance. Uh, I um, so we, we wrote a book as as you know, um, and so and the book is like this thick, okay? And I do not encourage people to read through it cover to cover in one shot because we have to list every possible symptom that you might get. And that gets pretty depressing to read after item number 26 on that list, right? And so I think it's important to understand the basics of the disease, to understand, you know, what are the 
What are the main things that I can be doing, you know, exercising? What are the main symptoms that I should be watching out for? What are the, and then have an idea of what that laundry list of symptoms is and store it somewhere and go, hey, I'm noticing that, you know, I don't know, I'm seeing double. Is that a symptom of Parkinson's? Well, let's just go check. Uh, oh, it turns out that it can be. All right, now I know. Uh, now we can fix it, right? Not everything is a symptom of Parkinson's, but there's an, an amazingly long list. And so it's almost like, um, you know, I, I, most Parkinson's, people with Parkinson's are pretty healthy otherwise. And so most of the time when there's another symptom, it's probably something to do with your Parkinson's disease. And so be aware that there's a big, long list of things that you may have never thought of that are your Parkinson's disease and might be fixable easily. And so you need to be aware of the, the spectrum of the disease as well what sort of things might happen to you and keep an eye out a little bit for them and so we can fix them. So as the disease evolves over time, will the family or informal caregiver require some, like some professional caregiver support because does the disease become more physical? And you know, when you mentioned earlier that you know, accompanying a person to the bathroom or accompanying showering, will it require over time like additional physical support? Yeah. Uh, so not everybody, right? Again, not everybody, uh, but that can be a, a big issue. Uh, and so, you know, if, if your person with Parkinson's is 280 pounds and, and you're a honey, uh, you know, you may need a lot more support. You may want to get that set in a little bit earlier so that if they fall down, you have some way of getting them up, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, there are the, you know, the CLSC, which in Quebec is the sort of government home support network can provide quite a lot of hours of support. Um, and not only just physical support, but just respite. If you're so scared that your loved one is going to fall, that you never leave the house. Well, this is like, it's like a COVID lockdown. You know, you're, mm -hmm. you're going to go bonkers. You need to get out. You need to do things. You need to keep. So don't be afraid to look for help, not only for the physical demands, but just for also for, the, the mental demands as well and 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 uh, uh, yeah etc um th there are physiotherapists we have occupational therapists there are nurses there are uh speech therapists there's a lot of people who deal with parkinson's disease there are groups uh that you can get out there uh so look around there's parkinson canada and there's parkinson quebec there's in fact two organizations um, that can help people uh, connect to resources or in the community you can just go and google them right now in french and in english um there are there's a lot of resources for people living with parkinson's disease it's i think it's a we're relatively well off in terms of supports um, so yes, uh, go on the internet and well, watch your sources on the internet. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of crazy out there, but, uh, you know, go to the places like the Michael J. Fox foundation, Parkinson Canada, Parkinson Quebec. You can use our booklets as well. Um, government sources as well. Uh, there's, there's a lot out there for you. If you, if you look around. I was very, very impressed with this booklet. We're going to show a slide of it. Oh, um, yeah. But I was very, very impressed about the booklet that you created with the MUHC Patient Education Office and Dr. Anang. Um, very, very, an excellent, excellent booklet. And we will be putting a link to the booklet on our website under the resources section for, for people to go to after this webcast. Um, Dr. Postuma, thank you so much for joining us today. It was very informative. I felt like I've learned so much now uh, about this disease and I really thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's a pleasure, thank you. 
So everyone, please join us on Wednesday, November 4th, for the topic will be healthy aging to stay strong and prevent dementia. My guest will be my, my great colleague, Dr. Jose Moret, professor and the director of geriatric medicine at the McGill Faculty of Medicine, the McGill University Health Center and the Jewish General Hospital. This webcast is an initiative of the McGill Dementia Education Program, which is funded by private donations. Once again, I would like to thank the Zeller Family Foundation for supporting today's webcast. If you'd like to make a contribution to our program or for more information, please visit www.mcgill.ca dementia. And if you have specific topics or questions that you would like us to address during our webcasts, please email us at dementia at mcgill.ca. Until next week, take good care of yourselves and your loved ones. Thanks for tuning in.